0: This is Shame and the Pandemic. I'm Paul McNally and today we are talking about a topic we are all familiar with but probably don't talk about much. Good old-fashioned British common sense. Here's a clip of Boris Johnson on the 11th of May 2020.
1: And I think what the British people understand is that this is the moment for the whole country to come together and to obey those rules and to apply their common sense
2: in the application of those rules. Boris starts talking about common sense um, at the same time as he is uh, trying to roll back on some of these kind of um, stricter lockdown or quarantine measures.
0: In the podcast studio today at Exeter University is Dr. Fred Cooper.
2: So he starts using it in this kind of in, in this way that feels flattering towards the British public, whatever that means.
0: This is in early May 2020.
2: And which kind of invests them with this kind of uh, almost mythical power of, of judgment in terms of deciding that what is is and isn't good from a, a kind of pandemic point of view.
0: And again and again, this phrase, common sense, keeps coming up.
2: Scholars of common sense, like uh, Anna Weersbicker, talk about how um, people use these prefixes, which are these kind of anchoring words. So, so words like um, good, solid, and British, <laughs> for example, um, or, or other words you could think of would be like basic, um, which kind of naturalize the idea of common sense at the same time as kind of rooting it in this. Um, I I suppose this every man kind of naturalised language of this is something that everybody, at least in theory, has access to.
0: This is Health Secretary at the time, Matt Hancock, speaking to Julia Hartley Brewer on Talk TV UK on a video uploaded to Facebook on the 12th of May. 2020. But a lot of people saying when it comes to common sense, they think it's a bit strange, and I have to say I'm a bit perplexed by this. Um, that I am now allowed to drive across the country two and two and a half hours to go and see my mother, who's 77 and is uh, shielding herself. I can go and visit her on my own. My husband can't come with me to share the driving thereabout because that would be two of us. Um, I can't see her in her garden. Because even though it's nice big garden, if it was sunny, but I can meet him in a park. But my husband can't come with me. And if it, my mother was still with my father, I couldn't see them both at the same time. I could sit in the car, while I saw, you know, she saw one, and I. Was, I mean, it's a lot of people are just saying that's not common sense, is it? Why is that
2: no, it, being brought in? No, it's perfect common sense, and and the reason is that large gatherings of people, even uh, you know, even half a dozen or more, might cause problems because outdoors the transmission is much lower uh, but it is still some risk. I mean people use the phrase common sense all the time I mean I I have quite a lot in, in, in my life kind of thought about common sense as if it might be like a real and meaningful thing. Um, we wanted to kind of trouble that idea both in terms of trying to understand what common sense means, uh, what common sense actually does when we, when we use it or when we kind of invoke it as a, as a possible sort of set of behaviours and ways of thinking, um, but also kind of very crucially what it means as a public health strategy, which here it kind of effectively emerges as.
0: For context, the UK public are enduring what is understood as a supremely confusing set of guidelines. At the start of the pandemic, the message was stay home, simple enough. And then common sense comes along at precisely the time that the message changes to stay alert.
2: Which, of course, you know, is is widely interpreted to mean more or less nothing. Um, and so in in the context of this shift from a kind of relatively clear public health guideline to an incredibly unclear one, common sense becomes... I suppose the toolkit that ordinary people and good pandemic citizens are expected to use uh, in order to um, decide for themselves what is good and responsible behaviour.
0: You might be wondering at this point what any of this has to do with shame.
2: Our problem and why we're discussing this from the perspective of shame is that we also think that it becomes a way of Policing the behaviour of other people. What you might term um, kind of common sense about common sense is that, despite the fact that it's common, um, nobody necessarily uh, always has it. Um, so it's it's not it's not kind of a widely shared thing. Um, uh, so people talk about kind of you know you, yourself having common sense, but then it's it's certainly not seen as something that everybody has. Despite that being like very core to the concept.
0: And the irony is that common sense isn't commonly understood in any given situation.
2: To us, these kind of constant implorations to, um, to use common sense and to apply common sense to the behaviour of other people becomes a way of imposing shame on types of pandemic behaviour and actions that aren't seen to live up to this ideal.
1: We aim to allow more businesses and
2: premises to open. This is the uh, 11th of May. And I mean, it's not this kind of vast de-escalation of quarantine measures. It's, it's really a kind of like partial rowing back to allow people a, f- a few more freedoms. Including potentially uh, those
1: offering uh, personal care, such as leisure facilities, public places and, and places of worship.
2: And Boris is very much kind of like trying to tell the British people or, or kind of trying to say that he kind of trusts them to get it right. In some ways, um, trying to kind of shift the emphasis away from what the government does and and particular failures there uh, onto everyday behaviour.
0: Then he starts talking about common sense and how he does it is really revealing.
2: So he starts saying things like uh, the new guidance is perfectly obvious, which frankly it isn't, um, and that the public understand exactly what we're trying to do, which doesn't really seem to be the case either.
0: Johnson says that he understands that this is a time for the whole country to come together, obey the rules, and apply common sense in the application of these rules.
2: He says that I know the British public will continue to help the police and everybody to enforce the rules. Um, I find this like a really interesting statement to make, right, because it's in that it, it kind of doesn't stay about applying common sense to your own actions. It becomes about thinking very clearly about what other people are doing. There's a kind of an atmosphere of surveillance that comes out of this kind of language.
0: This isn't a neighbourly friendly act. In fact, it's an injunction to shame. And Johnson keeps attaching this word British whenever he talks about common sense.
2: It's also quite interesting, I think, the word British in terms of thinking about who might and might not be excluded from the idea of common sense to begin with, and who this kind of sense is common amongst anyway. It's hard not to think about Jacob Rees-Mogg's comments that some of the people who died in, in the Grenfell Tower fire uh, might have survived if they'd applied common sense, um, rather than uh, kind of just going along with what the fire brigade had told them to do
0: then leader of the House of Commons and Lord President of the Council, Jacob Rees-Mogg, was criticised for trying to imply that common sense was fundamentally British and the people of colour in Grenfell Tower were not really able to access that.
2: Johnson is starting this kind of process of winding back um, these kind of strict strict measures of quarantine, which he, he was always kind of like deeply reluctant to do. It, it felt like... Um, and, and this is kind of one of the many criticisms of his early handling of the pandemic is that even when all of the advice was there and other countries in Europe were shutting down, uh, he was too slow. When he is kind of pairing those back, it becomes about common sense as a way of um, making this about public action rather than, than state action.
0: People tend to think of common sense as this fund of insights and practical knowledge about how the world works and how to interact with the world. A common, knowable world. These actions can include not putting your hand in a flame, or even when you're walking down the street and someone is approaching, do you move left or right to avoid them? I can never get that one right. I tend to think it should be left because we drive on the left, but then, That is a motorist's common sense and may not occur to someone who does not drive.
2: I mean, I suppose there are are kind of several critical takes on common sense. I mean, I think one of the really interesting things is that actually in everyday life, common sense is really more likely to appear as an idea or as something that people talk about in moments of like confusion, tension or conflict. So... Uh, if I'm, if I'm, you know, kind of going about my life successfully using my common sense, I don't think of myself as using common sense. Common sense really appears, I think, when somebody has fallen short of it. I mean, most people will use the phrase common sense when they're kind of critiquing something, whether it's the behavior of like a family member or friend kind of like, just use your common sense or why didn't you use your common sense? Um. Or, or when it's kind of being used to think about um, most, most generally the kind of behaviour of people who are seen to be elite or out of touch. So like, for example, why isn't the government using their common sense in doing this, this or this?
0: So although it is unifying, common sense is a language of tension.
2: It begins to become clear that there is no thing called common sense. It's not a thing of substance. It's not a fund that people can tap into. It's not... A bank that we can, you know, withdraw from. <laughs> it's not, it, you know, it's not any of these different kind of labored metaphors. It's not, it's not a real and meaningful communal good. It is something that people say when they want a certain effect to to happen. And I think this becomes really, really important in the context of both conservative politics, uh, the handling of the pandemic, and um, neoliberalism, very broadly defined, um, because. It's very much a way of thinking about expertise and thinking about the right thing to do in terms of, I suppose, this kind of instinct and judgment of the common man rather than learned expertise of um, people who, who kind of proclaim to to do this kind of stuff for a living.
0: And this becomes really saturating in the context of the pandemic.
2: Where we're kind of simultaneously looking to the science uh, in inverted commas to show us what to do but then also you know half ignoring it half doing other things mask wearing is is quite an obvious one um in terms of the um like the the guidance on mask wearing kind of fluctuating so much um the i suppose kind of like public symbolism of wearing a mask has changed quite a lot during the pandemic so really at the start of the pandemic, it was seen very much as like a signifier of illness, like I'm wearing this mask because I'm sick. Um, And in some ways becomes like stigmatized for that. So there's always going to be like a hardcore of non-mask wearers and a hardcore of mask wearers at all times. But, But kind of in the middle, there's this kind of quite changeable group And common sense seems to be quite intertwined with whether people wear masks or not, because if everyone's wearing a mask, it feels like common sense to do it. But the fewer people who wear them, I think that kind of has this kind of rolling effect because you start thinking, well, if no one else is going to bother, why should I do this kind of uncomfortable and strange thing that still isn't familiar to me even after Several years.
0: People have their own moral economies, which are completely grounded in their ideas of common sense. Quite often, that leads them to do less than the government has asked them. But it can also lead them to do more and be more cautious.
2: And I think that this is a really, really interesting site for judgment and shame, because every time that you decide to do something that's not, um, you know, within regulations. It's usually because you're using your common sense to decide, or you, you have decided that you're using your common sense to decide um, that the thing you are doing will have no appreciable harm, that the benefits will outweigh the risks, that you're not going to be putting anybody into any danger. You know that kind of oh I'll well, you know I think I might have caught COVID, but I'll I'll nip into the shop for five minutes because we really need this, and I'll keep my mask on and I'll stay away from everyone. Is something that might seem. In- completely reasonable to somebody and then might seem kind of like this real um you know kind of uh, offense against these kind of communal codes of like health and decency (laughs) to another person so um this is really where the kind of complete mutability and difference in terms of common sense comes to comes to the fore and really starts to create these like these big divisions which kind of bubble up online, you know, people drawing attention to other people, uh, not using their common sense, um, and and also can create like genuine interpersonal differences between people who know each other.
0: Here's Dr. Arthur Rose, he's a research fellow in medical humanities at the University of Exeter to elaborate.
1: You stake something of yourself when you're making these decisions that then if somebody calls you out on or commits you to that decision some way, you then feel shame. It's not just that what you've done is bad in some way, it's that some part of you committed to that action and then you calling you out on that is not just an attack on the action but is an attack on your common sense, I guess.
2: I think uh, common sense has become so entrenched in an, uh, as an idea um, in the way we think about a particular kind of, um, uh, I suppose, like mature, stable and successful self-identity. I mean, if you don't have any common sense, then that's like a real statement on you as a person. You know, um, you know, it, it starts to bring in questions about whether your judgment can be trusted. Um, you know, it, it alienates you from a certain kind of like, Uh, essential soundness of of kind of judgment that I think everybody wants to be included in it's quite a strange thing to be thought of as having no common sense it's it's really quite crucial I think to a lot of the ways people think about themselves and think about themselves as like competent effective people so if someone is seen as having no common sense that is yeah as, as you say like genuinely can be quite shaming I think
1: If you're in a society where suddenly, or not so suddenly, the expectation is that individuals will have to answer for structural issues. And you combine that with a situation in which people aren't sure what to do and a government response that says, this is what you have to do but actually we're not gonna say you have to do it, we're just gonna suggest that this is what you probably should do. People are going to interpret that differently. And then when people encounter each other um, and there's a crack between them in terms of what they're both expecting of each other socially, they will fill that crack with shame. You know, like for instance, I go to a traffic light My expectation of everybody else at the traffic light is that they know what the rules are when we're at the traffic light. If somebody then breaks those rules, I then am caught up in this feeling of anger about the fact that they've broken the rules and I need to somehow put something in place to explain why it is that they've broken the rules and it's much easier to just say well they did something wrong than to say oh well maybe I broke the rules or I was doing something that was uncertain or whatever and then what you usually do is you then turn to negative emotions like anger like hatred like shame to fill up those those gaps
3: historically when shaming has been used as a punishment, whether in penal systems or in jurisprudence.
0: This is Professor Luna Dolazal. You'll remember her from our previous episodes. She's an associate professor in philosophy and medical humanities at the University of Exeter.
3: Because it is a punishment. Shaming feels bad, feeling shamed, being singled out in a community, uh, the damage to your reputation, to your status, all of those things is bad but it's also used because it's a deterrent so that if you know, you, know, you won't do it again because you, the, the idea is that you won't do it again because you, you're afraid of being shamed again or you won't do it at all because you're afraid of shame. We can think of shame
0: as not just an emotion or related to the action of shaming, but as an interpersonal dynamic that gets set up through a set of practices and expectations that people are or aren't meeting
3: thinking about like the first UK lockdown which happened very suddenly I mean everyone kind of expected it to be coming but then it happened very suddenly and the guidance was stay at home so that presupposed a whole range of social and economic factors that kind of represented let's say middle class people who who had stable homes that they could stay in um, and had you know the the resources and the kind of lifestyle and circumstances that meant that kind of thing was tolerable or even possible, and for people who, like let's say, didn't have outdoor spaces or were homeless or had other, you know, had living with domestic violence or you know, ra- you know vulnerable people who needed to be shielding, like that 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 homogenizing injunction, stay at home, might not have been a possibility, and then those people may have, you know, had to break the rules or transgress out of necessity, but then were then open to shame and shaming because they didn't fit into this really narrow expectation that the stay-at-home injunction required. It kind of flattened out a whole range of experiences and circumstances into something very, very um, heteronormative and middle class, which was that you live in a home with your family and you can close the door and stay there.
0: Here is Arthur again.
1: Because one of our kind of interests is why did terms like Covidiot take off and why were they so kind of prevalent and why were they so effective as words, right? And, and um, you know, the one aspect of the stay at home injunction was that it flattened out individual experiences, that there were vulnerable people who were placed into situations that made them even more vulnerable. But the the flip side of that was that, of course, stay-at-home was a very clear injunction. And one thing that came out of some of the linguistic work that was done in response to COVID tracking, particularly the use of hashtags and terms in tweets that were um, tweeted um, in over the first year of the pandemic, was that covid surged or spiked on the day that they changed the injunction from stay at home to the much more nebulous Stay Alert, the 10th of May. One can't say that that the change was fixed to the injunction, but in on that day, what the surge was was not just tweets saying idiot, but there were also hashtags that were around lockdown, that were around stay at home, that were around don't be a covid, that were around keeping a stay-at-home mentality going, even though the government guideline changed.
3: Well, I think that's an example of how kind of muddy public health messaging or communications. Led to this shaming phenomena. So, what does stay alert mean? And also, stay alert. Stay alert of what? Stay alert of the virus. Where is the virus? Viruses and other people. Stay alert of other people. So, there's already this antagonistic relationship to others, putting the the emphasis on individuals and their actions. So, individual focused, behavior focused campaigns are ineffective, um, especially for things like obesity, and thinking about shaming used as a in punitive practices. So in the US there's a kind of revival or there has been a revival of using shaming instead of incarceration, for instance. And the reasons for that are multiple. One of them is it's just cheaper to plonk someone in front of the Walmart where they stole with an A-frame saying, I stole from Walmart and get them to stand there for two weeks than it is to put them in jail for two weeks. Um, and, and then, of course, it's like a punishment, but it's also a deterrent. But there's evidence that this doesn't work. So that shaming people who are probably already quite disadvantaged in a community, probably coming from a lower socioeconomic status, from a marginalized racial group, all of those things, just shaming them is is gonna further entrench like, you know, the negative affects that they may already be experiencing being positioned in society in that way. So there's plenty of evidence that it's not effective. Um, but there's for some reason, quite a lot of enthusiasm about using shaming, I think because intuitively you think it should work. And it's, you know, it's like intuitively it feels like the right people deserve it. You know, it's the right thing to do. The evidence is really clear that it's not effective, that it doesn't work. It often misfires or backfires. It often harms more than it does good. And, and I think it's understandable that on a personal or community level, that might not be apparent, or you know, you don't you don't have access to that kind of evidence. But for a body like Public Health England or the Department of Health and Social Care, like th- this should be known. <laughs> this should be it, it. It should be a well, um, well known idea that using shaming as the affective driver of a public health intervention is going to be largely ineffective.
0: Next, we go back to Fred to elaborate on this term, COVIDiot
2: which is this kind of contraction between COVID and an idiot, as as you might
0: expect. Here's a clip by British Asian Puppets uploaded to YouTube on the 12th of April 2020. This is an urgent health warning. While most of us are heeding government directives to self-isolate and avoid contact, there are others who are blatantly disregarding the rules. Who are these COVIDiots? Partying and messing around. To add any consideration to the consequences, let's look at what could happen to a typical Covidiot.
2: The word Covidiot is increasingly used, actually, in, in all kinds of different contexts, including in like print and online journalism, to refer to somebody who has um, in some way kind of fallen short of the expectations that other people have of them during the pandemic. So, um, for example, it, it does kind of aggregate around. Uh, willful ignorance of um pandemic pandemic guidelines for example or, or kind of going out of your way to do the opposite of what you're being told to but it also accrues around um instances where people are judged not to have successfully used their common sense
0: it becomes a way to refer to patterns of behavior that disrupt people's assumptions about how other people should behave even if they don't conform to them themselves
2: so it's quite an interesting word um that actually emerges as a a means of kind of calling power to account. Um, So the first recorded use um, is uh, in a tweet uh, on the 26th of February 2020, where um, one Twitter user posed a question, um, in the great virus off of 2020, which are you more worried about? And one person replied uh, with a single word, COVIDiot45. Uh, 45 referring to Donald Trump as uh, the 45th President of the United States. So it starts out as a means of shaming like an inadequate political response, um, obviously kind of all bound up in this liberal narrative of, of Trump as as being a stupid man. You know, there are all sorts of instances, of, you know, questions over whether he can read, for example, um, which uh, conveniently ignore his his malevolence um, in favour of, uh, of going after his um, supposed mental faculties, kind of a fairly familiar tactic if you think about uh, George, George Bush Jr., for example, as well. Um, so this starts out as a way of calling government responses into account, but then very, very rapidly becomes a kind of language of just calling very, very ordinary people to account for their, um, their supposed kind of missteps and misactions.
0: So people start to become branded as COVIDiots.
2: This happens as well around kind of, you know, instances of people kind of going out to the beach later in the summer, individual instances of, um, you know, people who are caught breaking lockdown regulations and like fined or, or kind of um, fined or cautioned by the police uh, that then make their way into like local and, and national newspapers. Um, it, it also kind of that that function of calling power to account does continue, so you see a kind of rise in um, in Twitter use of the word "covidiot" uh, around particular government actions. So, like Johnson is is routinely called a "covidiot" by by critics, um, and then you also see it as um, as the kind of mass vaccine rollout happens um, in in kind of mostly 2021. Uh, you see it being used as a way of of shaming people who who don't immediately take up the vaccine or who, who for whatever reason, decide not to have it. So it has this kind of long and mutable lineage as a way of casting shame within the pandemic.
0: There is a kind of symmetry between calling someone out on their common sense and being branded a Covidiot.
2: There are some instances where the two don't necessarily align. Like some some people are kind of like, very clearly identified as kind of doing what they want and so it's idiot is being used as a kind of a pejorative word for someone who is being like willfully selfish but actually in the vast majority of cases it's really about a failure to exercise common sense and it's about a failure to exercise common sense in a context where that failure to exercise common sense has become publicly visible I find kind of local news stories um, about Covid-Idiots really interesting um, because they're everywhere. There's this kind of phenomenon where at the start of the pandemic and the start of the the more broader use of Covid-Idiots, it's there in inverted commas um, as like a kind of a quotation. It kind of puts a little distance between the person writing the piece and the idea of a Covid-Idiot. But then more and more the, the, the inverted commas drop off. And it starts to become this thing, COVIDians. We all know what it means. We all know who they are. But actually, what it does is it raises really interesting questions because so many of these um, local news stories are literally just about people who've been cautioned by the police, and that's the mechanism by which they become called to public attention. That's how they become visible, right? That's that's why we know about these COVIDians as opposed to all of the other people who contravene, you know, lockdown regulations without you know, anyone ever knowing about it. And so it kind of becomes this dynamic that's actually really about power and about the kind of people who can be plausible if confronted about their behavior. As we talk about in a in a kind of another episode of this of this podcast about, um, about racialized anxieties about who is using what kinds of space, how and where. And we know that kind of policing of ethnic minorities has been particularly harsh during the pandemic, um, with uh, police much more likely to start thinking about contraventions of, of lockdown regulations and to be more punitive in their approach um, when people aren't white. Um, so it's all kind of bundled up into actually a really, really complex and power-laden question of who can convince a policeman or policewoman that what they are doing is reasonable. And so what then becomes about stupidity or covidiacy is actually completely bound up in these power relations and is really deeply, uh, unequally represented and experienced. And so I think what's really notable in some of the, the discourses on common sense is that they really ebb and flow, right? So they're they're always really talked up when the government is retreating from a strict position of quarantine. And then as things are worsening and it looks like there might be, um, you know, harsher measures on the horizon, nobody's really trying to talk to you about common sense anymore. So it's there's almost a kind of like boom and bust of the, the rhetoric that's being used. And it's really clear that when it doesn't serve a purpose, it's very much like quickly jettisoned. It's quite hard not to situate all these pronouncements on common sense um, as part of this longer longer history of of conservative uh, rhetorical uses of common sense. So you have for example William Hague's uh, common sense revolution in 2001 um, and David Cameron's justifications of austerity policies as common sense for the common good. Even as far back as as 1966, the philosopher Stanley Rosen um, identifies common sense as imposing a hierarchy of outcomes um, in which, uh, according to Rosen, in his words, uh, self-preservation and then a secure and even comfortable self-preservation predominate. So injunctions to use common sense um, become do what's best for you, which in turn becomes protect yourself or get what you can. So you can see this rhetoric underpinning a certain kind of philosophy of how to live your life, if you will. So actually, the language of common sense suits this conservative ideological and electoral agenda, because it really uh, places the focus of what you do as, as kind of inward facing, as being more about what you can get and what you can do for yourself than what you can get and what you can do for other people. So it's difficult to read common sense and pronouncements on common sense as a facet of public health as being in any way distinct from this broader emphasis on common sense in conservative rhetoric, which is calculated to have a specific set of effects, um, which in many cases have nothing to do with good public health or, or um, surviving the pandemic. <laughs>
0: Been listening to Shame and the Pandemic. I'd like to give a huge thanks to the UK's Arts and Humanities Research Council, the Wellcome Trust, the Wellcome Centre for Cultures and Environments of Health, the University of Exeter, Alice Waterson, the Drama Department's podcast studio, and all our contributors. This podcast has been produced by Volume. I'm Paul McNally. See you next time.
3: Volume.